Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Well, we're in Lesson 12, and we know the progression of our last three studies has brought us into learning about the Spirit's work within the body of believers and the Spirit's bestowal of spiritual gifts was Lesson 9, and Lesson 10 was this idea of how we are to worship in private and also corporately, in spirit and in truth. And last week we talked about the necessary command of the body of believers to go out into the world to share Christ, known as the Great Commission. And there were four scripture references in the gospel narratives in the book of Acts that clearly lay this command for us repeatedly that Christ has given. And even though we know that the world is currently ruled by Satan, and we talked about all of the opposition that comes with that, still we are commanded to go. And uh, the Holy Spirit is the one who brings this effectiveness to our witness as we go out and share. And He is the one who convicts our hearts of who to witness to, those that He, as it said, lays on our hearts to pray for and to go speak with and to minister to. Uh, He opens the windows of the sinner's heart to receive this message that we proclaim as we are obedient. And he provides the encouragement when we feel inadequate. And this is through the promise of Scripture. And he will give us the words then when we're speaking to those so that they are saved. In Luke 12, verses 11 and 12, he says, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense, or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, it doesn't matter if you're before rulers and authorities. You don't have to be before a judge. Whenever you are in the Word of God and the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you, you will know what to say at the right moment when you are witnessing and in defense of the gospel. Now, there is this also uh, a necessity of prayer for those who are proclaiming Christ in their word, and the message, and also in deed to impact the hearts and minds of those who will receive this truth of Christ. In Colossians 4, 2 through 6, it says, Devote yourselves to prayer. And that could be a message in itself. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. He also exhorts them to conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So we see these components. We have preparatory prayer. 
so that the Holy Spirit would make the hearer receptive. And also the spiritual walk and our deed that the world sees in verse 5 must match the message that we will proclaim. And also the third component, this gracious speech when we share the gospel, always in humility and love. This is the order laid in Scripture. Now, even though this process should be followed, it is still by God's grace that the hearer receives the message. You can shine the radiant Son of God before the eyes of the spiritually blind forever, but unless God in His grace gives eyes to see Christ, the message will always be rejected. Why is it that all the hosts of heaven rejoice for just one sinner being saved? Are they rejoicing that we are really good at sharing the gospel? Are they rejoicing that the one being saved is intelligent enough to understand who God is? Or are they rejoicing that God in his sovereignty has shown mercy? Of course, the hosts of heaven are glad for the salvation of the sinner. But their rejoicing is primarily a recognition of what God has done. They know the hopelessness of the sinner, apart from God's saving work, from the beginning to the end. They know the sacrifice and the pain that God in Christ endured for the saving of that one. They know that it's the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration of that sinner's heart. Therefore, there is great rejoicing that the impossible has been made possible because of God. That said, even the faithful and the faithful witness experience disappointment in their witnessing. That may be a short-term disappointment, or it may be an extended period of time. A family member, a friend, or co-worker whom you have prayed for, remember, preparatory prayer, walked in obedience before, indeed, and shared the gospel message, they are still unregenerate, unrepentant, and an enemy of God, dead in their sins. So what are we to make of this? Do we continue to share? And for how long? 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26 says, The Lord's bondservant, which is every believer, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So in verse 25, we find this phrase, if perhaps God may grant. We know that saving faith is a gift of God. And here we find that repentance, this turning to God, is something that God grants. 
This is no guarantee that our efforts will produce fruit, for it is always up to God. Last week in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9, we read, Paul wrote, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So it is always the sovereign will of God. Now rest assured that no effort that the evangelist puts forth is lost. And this effort is to witness to the greatness of his glory. It is never useless. If we are following the great command of God to tell of Christ, even if it is utterly rejected as God does not grant them repentance, God will still receive honor and glory, and we will be blessed for being obedient to this command. This lesson today will focus on this idea of the Spirit's work in what has become known as revival. Now, revival is kind of a loaded term these days. It can mean either a new work in the heart of the unregenerate, bringing them to saving faith, or it can mean a renewal of stagnant believers that have been revived back into service. Studying church history reveals that certain periods of time were seemingly more fruitful than others, and that it was not until the 18th century that these types of revivals, also known as awakenings, were apparent and noticed by the world at large. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes in his book, Joy Unspeakable, that the study of the Holy Spirit in regards to revival is not normative in many texts about the Holy Spirit. He writes, I have made it a practice that whenever I see a book on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which I've never seen before, to look first at the synopsis or the table of contents at the beginning and the index at the end. I look for revival, and I do not find it. He goes on to say that when the spiritual mindedness of a generation has waned, instead of praying for the Spirit of God to stir the generation, evangelistic campaigns are formed and organized first. It is the effort of the organized ministry that is the primary focus. And then following the organization, then a prayer is prayed to bless the campaign that has been organized, kind of as an aside. Instead of recognizing that it must primarily be God the Holy Spirit who will bring the increase and asking him to do so. As we look at the Holy Spirit's work in this area of revival or spiritual awakening, uh, it's my hope that we can begin to see clearly why, if we desire this revival 
this awakening, whether in our own hearts or in the world, that we recognize it as the Holy Spirit's work applying Christ, exalting Christ uh, for us, uh, for it is something that he does. So let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we look at this last bit of lesson on, in this study, we pray that we would think clearly and also that you would open our hearts to what the Word teaches about your work in this revival, this idea of revival in this reality. It's more than an idea. And Lord, we pray that you would encourage our hearts if we have been witnessing uh, to reassess why we witness and also um, why we see fruit in witnessing. And Lord, we thank you for all of the fruit that, that you develop in people and for all the success that you give to the various ministries that come forth from this church. And we pray that you would continue to bless even our time now. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So in church history, and it varies from whoever the historian is, I found six waves of special revival or awakenings in the church worldwide from the 1700s until now. The first involved the great names of George Whitfield and John Wesley in America. We have Jonathan Edwards, and this began in 1727 or thereabouts and continued in 1734, so this was a time period across the world of this awakening, and Jonathan Edwards was primarily in Massachusetts in the Connecticut River Valley in early America. This is, you know, pre-revolution in the colonies there. Jonathan Edwards was born in 1703 in America, so he was British, but he was American, you want to think about that. There's a transition of history there in his lifetime, but Lloyd-Jones describes Jonathan Edwards in the highest of honors, and this isn't in my notes, but I'll mention it. He said that if we were to think of the great men of the faith as mountains, he said that uh, John Calvin and Luther would be the Alps, and he went on to say that Well, I forgot. Someone else is the Himalayas, all right? So some other great name in the history of the church. But he said that Jonathan Edwards was Mount Everest. And he's describing something great here. He says, I'm going to suggest that the element of the Holy Spirit, this is Lloyd-Jones talking about Edwards, that the element of the Holy Spirit is more prominent in Edwards than in any other of the Puritans. And that's saying something. If you've ever looked at the works of the Puritans and the way they live their lives, that is saying something great, and from Lloyd-Jones nonetheless. He continues that Puritanism reached its fullest bloom in the life and ministry of Jonathan Edwards. The colonies in America were largely spiritually dead before the Great Awakening. A young minister who came to live with the Edwards family was named William Cooper, who went on, went on to become a reverend himself, and he worked in ministry with Edwards. And he wrote a preface to a work that Edwards wrote called Distinguishing Marks of the Work of the Holy Spirit Within the Church. And he wrote, 
But what a dead and barren time has it now been for a great while with all the churches of the Reformation. The golden showers have been restrained, the influences of the Spirit suspended, and the consequence has been that the gospel has not had any imminent success. Now this is in the time of Jonathan Edwards, before this revival or this awakening began. He continues, Conversions have been rare and dubious. Few sons and daughters have been born to God, and the hearts of Christians not so quickened, warmed and refreshed under the ordinances as they have been. That this has been the sad state of religion among us in this land for many years, except one or two distinguished places, which have at times been visited with a shower of mercy, while other towns and churches have not been rained upon, will be acknowledged by all who have spiritual senses exercised, as it has been lamented by faithful ministers and serious Christians, or those who care to take notice of what's happening here. That's the end of his, of Cooper's quote. Those who truly appreciate the rains, the showers of God's mercy, are those who have experienced the drought. For the minister or laity that desire revival, after prayerfully and consistently sharing the gospel, the soul rescued is that refreshing shower. The men who have had the most impact for the kingdom are those who have a complete reliance upon the work of the Holy Spirit, applying the power of the Word of God. Edwards himself wrote, I have many times had a sense of the glory of the third person in the Trinity and his office as sanctifier. In his holy operations, communicating divine light and life to the soul, God, in the communications of his Holy Spirit, has appeared as an infinite fountain of divine glory and sweetness, being full and sufficient to fill and satisfy the soul, pouring forth in secret communications like the sun in its glory, sweetly and pleasantly diffusing light and life. And I have sometimes an affecting sense of the excellency of the word of God as a word of life, as the light of life, a sweet, excellent, life-giving word accompanied, accompanied with a thirsting after that word that it might dwell richly in my heart. So Edwards himself, in his own awakening, his own liveliness in the spirit, talks about this sweet, pleasant work of the Holy Spirit in his heart. Now, we talked about that in the sanctification of the believer individually, but it allows the Word of God to richly dwell within our hearts. We see in Edward's testimony in writing that it is the fullness of the Spirit who gives this affecting desire for the Word of God to dwell richly within. It is an intimate dependency on the Spirit of God for revival in the heart, and in, if in one, also in the masses of hearts who would hear his preaching and read his writings that led to the life of devoted ministry 
an impact on the New England world, and not only there, but around the world. An essay Edwards wrote to some friends in Scotland who inquired how to pray was entitled, and, and this is a title long enough that some people wouldn't even read a short story this long, but this is the title. He says, An humble attempt to promote explicit agreement or unity and visible union of God's people in extraordinary prayer for the revival of religion and for the advancement of Christ's kingdom on earth. Put that on the front cover. <laughs> See if people pick that one up and read it. But this one's a real page turner. Now, revivals around the world must also be tested. For many false teachings have resulted in false awakenings. A lot of emotionalism, but not a whole lot of truth. There's a whole lot of spirit, not a whole lot of truth. Edwards wrote a treatise that circulated the world entitled Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Holy Spirit. And he lists five marks for an authentic work of the Spirit. And these are in your notes if you'd like to follow along. He says, first, this work exalts Christ. And he gets all of these points from the book of 1 John, chapter 4. And in verses 2 and 3, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So the work exalts Christ. Number two, this work, is it of the Holy Spirit? Well, does it oppose Satan's kingdom? Verses 4 and 5 says, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. So that's verses 4 and 5. And then number 3, and we've talked about this at length, but this work greatly regards the Holy Scriptures. Now just a quick question here. Have any of us in this body come from a church previously that did not regard the Holy Scriptures in an exalted state. That's a blessing. There are some people that come out of churches that are strictly emotionalism. It's all about the experience, as we've learned about in worship. And there's no truth. But a true work of the Holy Spirit highly exalts the scriptures. Verse 6 says, We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth, on the one hand, highly regarding the scriptures, and the spirit of error. And if you sit long enough under the teaching of someone who does not reference the scriptures and does not look to the scriptures, you will quickly see the error, that spirit of error. 
So number four, this work compels men to truth and draws a closeness to God. And that he refers back to verse six again, knowing the spirit of truth will compel us to more of him and a closer walk with him. In verse five, this work is done in the spirit of love to God and to man. Verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now these are familiar verses to, to many of us, but this is a distinguishing mark of whether or not this work, whether it be a revival or a mission in another country or some other place down the road or even in our own body, is this ministry or this collected body of believers working in love with one another and with a love for the things of God and for Him? Edwards has much more to say in his treatise. That's a very condensed form. He actually lists nine negative points of view, but it was more about the individual and the Holy Spirit's work in the individual, things such as it is still the work of the Holy Spirit even if, or even if you do see someone who is crying when they hear the gospel message. Because at that time, the Puritans, uh, although they were passionate, um, coming from this reformed belief. They weren't very familiar, I guess, with emotionalism. And Edwards was a very emotional preacher, as was George Whitfield and, and Wesley, all the main preachers of the Great Awakening there in the first. But I would recommend, it's free, obviously, it's, on, it's online. So if you want to look up that Um, Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Holy Spirit by Edwards, it's worth your time. Now, the Second Great Awakening in 1792 in the United Kingdom resulted from what was known as a concert of prayer and in turn resulted in many converts and various social reform, such as the abolition of the slave trade, prison reform, and the formation of Sunday school, as well as missionary societies affecting Europe and the U.S. Later, we see this thing known as the resurgence of 1830. And most probably don't think about this, but it began in Hawaii, of all places. And and this is pre-state Hawaii. This is where the Polynesians were mainly living. But there was a mission out there. There were 500 Christians on the largest island of Hawaii there in 1830. And by 1838, the churches by count and survey uh, had reached 7,500. Now, before that resurgence or awakening on that island, it was requested by the men of that island, by people in the mainland of early America, to pray for revival. It was a specific prayer, and they saw the fruit of that. The third great awakening involved the well-known D.L. Moody, Dwight Moody, who began as a YMCA janitor. 
when this revival began in 1857, and it's called Moody's Mission Sunday School. He began that. He had a heart for the youth in Chicago, the lost youth, the poor in inner-city Chicago. And this grew in such a way to the founding of the Moody Church. It was originally called the, uh, I believe, the Illinois Street Church or something to that effect, but soon after it became known as, or later, it became known as the Moody Church. And eventually, Dwight Moody became a missionary himself in England and had a great work there. Charles Spurgeon wrote during this time of awakening, for he is also across the pond, as they say, during the same time in the early 1860s, they had an awakening as well. He said, We shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. And this was from his famous address called Only a Prayer Meeting. I think he had a little sarcasm in that title. Only a Prayer Meeting. In the 1860s, Spurgeon organized prayer meetings at the Metropolitan Tabernacle where people met to pray from 7 a.m. to 7.30 p.m. every day. His meetings on Monday evenings saw regularly 3,000 people attending. A visitor once came to inquire, this was a young minister, why there was such great success for these meetings. Spurgeon walked him to the door of the sanctuary and opened it to show the faithful prayers in the sanctuary. It was also during this time that Hudson Taylor's ministry in China, which I think I referred to last week, also flourished. This is that third great awakening. A few decades later, in 1904, the Welsh Revival took place. In two years, it's been counted that 100,000 converts were added to the Welsh congregation. The sixth notable revival is the modern-day revival, which has taken place in China, where it is estimated that from the six million believers that there were in 1980, there came to be 68 million, counted by the Pew Research Center in 2010. Now, according to this Pew Research Center's calculation, there could be as many as 160 million Christians by the year 2025. And we know that where persecution is great, sometimes the desire for the word is more. And I think we see that in the work of the Holy Spirit. And this isn't in my notes, but I believe they said by um, 2050 or so, there may be as many as 247 million Christians in China if the work continues as it is. Joel Beek, a man who is an author, he's president and professor of systematic theology and homiletics at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, He writes, we desperately need churches to unite in the kind of prayer that the Spirit may use to produce worldwide revival. There is an evident relationship in prayer and revival. 
And this is why in Christ's prayer, there is a petition for revival in that the kingdom of God would come on earth as it is in heaven. Now you may say, well, that strictly refers to his rule as the Jews were looking for. They were looking for that kingly rule for his kingdom to come. But of what does the kingdom consist of? Of course, our ruler and king, the chief cornerstone who laid the foundation for the kingdom. But it's also made up of the living stones. And it's bringing in these stones to build up the kingdom. So bringing in the lost is part of this kingdom coming. It is the development of the kingdom. And I just said in my notes, it's ironic that I was debating whether or not to close our study because, you know, the last study, you want to make it really good. Well, that's not my work, but debating between the importance of prayer or revival. And these two ideas are inseparable. There is no true revival apart from the faithful prayers of dedicated believers. In James 5.16, we read, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. What makes a prayer effective? Well, it is praying in the will of God. What is the will of God? That none should perish and that all would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in 2 Peter 3.9. Now, a man that has influenced me personally, Francis Schaeffer, was born in America in 1912. He was not raised a believer from an early age. He got a Bible at the age of 18 and read it for six months in private and through the work of the Holy Spirit became a believer. He went into the ministry and was a pastor in Pennsylvania and then felt led to begin a mission in Switzerland of all places, to begin a children's ministry there in 1948. So he's 36 years old at this time. While there, he went through a time of self-assessment and uh, doubt of his belief, and he was a very thoughtful man. He was always self-assessing and philosophic in the way he viewed the world. He was asking himself, what does this all mean? Why am I doing this? Is what I believe, in his words, true truth? Well, he emerged after uh, this period of a, of a few months, 1951, certain of his calling. He wrote, I have a book called Letters of Francis Schaeffer, and he writes, in 1951, he says, what does all this mean to me? I'm not sure except that it brings me increasingly to my knees to ask that the Holy Spirit may have his way in my life, that I may think of all the wonders of the present aspect of my salvation, and that they may be real to me in my life and ministry. What a wonderful Lord we have, and how glorious it is to indeed have God as our Father, to be united with Christ, and to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Oh, would to God that our ministry could be under his full direction 
and in his power without reservation. In another letter in the same year, Schaefer writes to another man, a friend of his. He said, I have seen, and this is again after stagnant growth in his ministry in Pennsylvania and then also in uh, his work there in Switzerland, but he said, I've seen the Holy Spirit work in individual lives like I have never experienced before. It reminds me of what I've heard of the revivals of yesterday. It would not be counted for much, only ones and twos. So it wasn't like he had this great revival in his work of hundreds. But he says, but it is as different as day and night from the way I've seen it come before. If the Lord can do it with me, with all I know is wrong with Schaefer, with ones and twos, he can do it with hundreds too, if he wishes. Schaefer went on to found an international ministry known as Labrie. It's got seven places around the world. Labrie means shelter. And it invites young people, young adults, with honest questions about God and the significance of life. And to answer these questions using the Word of God and ministry together. And the revival in his own heart then led to a revival in others. Now, Schaefer was part of a group of ministers. He actually gave a speech in 1974. And those of you familiar with anything of um, international missions, this was the first international Congress of World Evangelism in 1974 in Switzerland, Lausanne, Switzerland. There were 150 nations represented at this council, and uh, Billy Graham was one who was the one who called for this. And we know Billy Graham has his own doctrinal, um, we could say disputations or things that we may not hold directly. But he and 2,700 others met to talk about and to establish unity in evangelism, to share Christ. In their international covenant that was signed by many people, the first one says, We affirm our belief in the one eternal God, Creator and Lord of the world, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who governs all things according to the purpose of His will. He has been calling out from the world a people for Himself and sending His people back into the world to be His servants and His witnesses, which is what we've been talking about here, for the extension of His kingdom, the building up of Christ's body, and the glory of His name. We confess with shame that we have often denied our calling and failed in our mission by being conformed to the world or by completely withdrawing from it. Yet we rejoice that even when born by earthen vessels, the gospel is still a precious treasure. To the task of making that treasure known in the power of the Holy Spirit, we desire to dedicate ourselves anew. And that was the first statement. And I'm going to skip down to the 14th, because it pertains to our study here. He says, or they say, we agree, 
We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Father sent His Spirit to bear witness to His Son. Without His witness, ours is futile. Conviction of sin, faith in Christ, new birth and Christian growth are all His work. Further, the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit. Thus, evangelism should arise spontaneously from a spirit-filled church. A church that is not a missionary church is contradicting itself and quenching the spirit. Worldwide evangelism will become a realistic possibility only when the spirit renews the church in truth and wisdom, faith, holiness, love, and power. We therefore call upon all Christians to pray for such a visitation of the sovereign spirit of God that all his fruit may appear in all his people and that, and this was a dispute amongst the people there, but all his gifts, and we've talked before about spiritual gifts and what gifts are still active in the church, but, and that all his gifts may enrich the body of Christ. Only then will the whole church become a fit instrument in his hands that the whole earth may hear his voice. I love that. This is the effectual work of the Holy Spirit, pointing us to the Savior, convicting us individually of sin, exhorting us to good works through the Scriptures, and also... The Holy Spirit's work that moved men to write what we trust in the Word of God as inerrant and perfect, a perfect guide to follow. What a helper is our Holy Spirit. What a strength for the weak. Remember, comforte, our comforter, our strengthener. What a gloriously patient teacher, both firm and gentle in his instruction. Doing the Lord's work in the power of the Spirit means doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way. This means praying. It means spreading the gospel. It means living in yielded obedience to the Word of God and reliance on the Spirit's work for effective service. To take away any of these essentials, these needful things is to result in greatly lacking or altogether unfruitful results. I'm going to end our study with a Puritan prayer, and this will end our lesson this morning, and it will be our prayer. I don't normally read prayers, but this one I am. And it is entitled, Things Needful. Thou eternal source author of all created being and happiness. I adore thee for making man capable of religion, that he may be taught to say, where is God, my maker, who giveth songs in the night? But degeneracy has spread over our human race, turning glory into shame rendering us forgetful of thee. We know it is thy power alone 
that can recall wandering children, can impress on them a sense of divine things, and can render that sense lasting and effectual. From thee proceed all good purposes and desires and the diffusing of piety and happiness. Thou hast knowledge of my soul's secret principles and art aware of my desire to spread the gospel. Make me an almoner to give thy bounties to the indigent, comfort to the mentally ill, restoration to the sin-diseased, hope to the despairing, joy to the sorrowing, love to the prodigals. Blow away the ashes of unbelief by the Spirit's breath and give me light, fire, and warmth of love. I need spiritual comforts that are gentle, peaceful, mild, refreshing, that will melt me into conscious lowliness before thee, that will make me feel and rest in thee as my all. Fill the garden of my soul with the wind of love, that the sense of the Christian life may be wafted to others. Then come and gather fruits to thy glory, so shall I fulfill the great end of my being, to glorify thee and be a blessing to men. Amen. Amen.